So this is a paper which Hike has forwarded me or volunteered me to do on our behalf. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. And it partly comes out of um, <clears throat> some things in, in I do some sit on a number of advisory boards for DFE. Um, and the bit of DFE which came out of biz, so the business um, and innovation skills bit of UK government. Um, and I sometimes sit there thinking, if this goes on any longer, I'm going to start banging my head on the table. And I've sometimes told them that I'm about to start banging my head on the table. Can we talk about something sensible? Um, <clears throat> and I sometimes wonder, when I'm sat there, why we do things, or why they're doing things which plainly do not work and will not work. Um, and so this is partly some reflections that Heike and myself have got around this issue of learning gain. I'm trying to unpack what, what we think is really going on there, here. Um, a slight change of title, partly because um, we don't know if there's one problem or several problems with it. Um, and then on the way in on the train this morning, I thought, no, actually, there is one problem. Um, and maybe we'll come to that. So um, <clears throat> really, it's just our kind of reflecting on it, trying to unpack what's going on uh, beyond, the kind of, beyond the kind of hype. Which, hold on, what did you press? Yeah, yeah okay. Colleagues, <laughs> we have seen a learning game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is, would be very familiar territory to a lot of you. Um, it's basically what Hefke wants to try and get out of learning game, um, all these kind of knowledge skills. And I've put in here attributes in parentheses because uh, this in their quote didn't include attributes, but if you look elsewhere, it talks about attributes, which itself um, is an issue that they're not really quite sure what it is they're looking through. And the things which are important here, it's about trying to identify the value of higher education, and they're going to use our understanding of learning data to try and shape their policies and investments accordingly. Um, in one sense, that's not a problem. Um, and quite clearly, if Dirk had been here earlier today, he would have gone through the slides, you're showing that is a reasonable question to ask what goes on inside higher education. Um, I think for too long we've not really looked at what goes on inside higher education. And I've been you know, lecturing for uh, more than 20 years and I have seen some real changes in higher education um, in terms of pedagogy. Number of pilots, um, and I think there's going to be real, real uh, uh, implications here for the TEP uh, and the, sh the shake-up uh, in the kind of rankings of, of universities based on what comes out of learning, out of learning day. <clears throat> and I think really there are some issues here which have got, got down at the bottom. There are things which the government claims trigger the policy, or in our kind of common sense way we think trigger the policy, but there are real problems within the policy and the two necessarily don't align. Uh, and I make no apology here for trying to, with, with how you're trying to problematize learning game and its stated aims. Um, I mean, I think possibly the real problem is it sidesteps a lot of the problems to do with higher education and what's happening in higher education. Um, and I put this last bullet point here because um, doing something else, uh, sometimes an advisor to the Scottish government, and they always say, you always problematize it. Can you just give us a solution to this? Instead of telling us it won't work, tell us what will work. Um, and in this case, I think the starting base has to be to try and problem problematize it before we can try and fix it, fingers crossed. Okay. okay, so this is the kind of espoused challenge. This is the kind of common sense narrative underpinning uh, learning game. 
massive expansion of higher education in the UK, rising student numbers, rising HEIs, why we have 110 plus universities and we're still creating God only knows. No, I'm serious. I, I really, I, I don't get it. Um, and we are talking before about the uh, number of graduate jobs. Actually, the number of graduate jobs in the UK is around about 30%. The old standard occupational classification, SOC 2 professions, about between 25 and 30% of the workforce are nominally graduate occupations. So, <clears throat> I have this debate with Kate. Um, there's a distinction, I think, between the jobs of gra uh, graduate jobs and the jobs that graduates do. Uh, and I think um, <clears throat> there's something going on there. And of course, it was legitimized by uh, uh, claims by New Labour back in the 1990s that we were entering a knowledge economy. And this knowledge economy, of course, was uh, supposed to be the way we would create our competitive future by competing on, quote, brains, not brawn. You know, we couldn't compete with Asia because they had late, cheap labour costs. What we needed was to go to high value added stuff. It won't come as a surprise to you that when New Labour was devising this, the 50% benchmark um, for the number of young people to go to graduate was made up. It sounded like a good number. And it's a very good piece of research, which, surprise, surprise, hasn't yet been published, um, by a guy called Andy Westwood, who some of you might know. He was the head of uh, uh, Guild uh, Collection of Universities. He's now at Manchester University. He's done a PhD because he was involved in drafting a lot of this policy, uh, and going back and interviewing some of the ministers. And they freely admit, they just made it up. It's like a good figure. So <clears throat> we massively expanded this, but it was legitimised by discourses about knowledge economy. What we've got, therefore, is this massive system, expanding system, rising costs for government, withdrawal of public funding. We are now, according to the OECD, and, and Dirk might have uh, put this up, the lowest publicly funded tertiary education amongst the OECD countries, which is actually quite a shock to me. I thought we would be somewhere at least around the average, but no, we're right at the bottom, the publicly, fund the publicly funding uh, tertiary education. And of course, what we're doing is just shifting the cost to learners by loans. And so there's two value for money considerations here. One for government, which is that the government wants efficient customer delivery. It's a bit vague on who the customer is. The customer could be the, these people, the learners, but it could also be, according to David Willits, when he was Minister of Universities, it could be employers. But the point is, we should be delivering the product efficiently. And that raises questions about you know, uh, two semester rather than three semester academic years, because you can get throughput going through more quickly. And you know, for those of us being doing not just education research, but kind of employment research, it should come as no surprise. There's something called new public management, which is about trying to get the public sector and those organizations which are funded through public money to act like private sector organizations. It's applied to, it's been applied to the NHS, it's been applied to the prison service, it's been applied to the employment service. So, you know, why wouldn't it be applied eventually to higher education? It come, shouldn't come as a surprise to us. But note here, when the government starts looking inside organisations, like the prison service, like the NHS, like the um, <coughs> universities, it doesn't do that for the private sector. In fact, quite the opposite. It says, in the private sector, management has, should have the right to manage, and if you start imposing regulations, it just increases red tape. But it doesn't do that for us. 
for the learners, this, and I'm hiking myself with that, can just done, is a customization of learning experience. When I used to lecture at big, <coughs> big classes, I used to say, come to university a bit like a gym. You buy a membership, you get all the equipment, you get a coach, but the only way you're going to get a six pack is if you put the effort in yourself. Now it's a bit more like, or at least in their heads, a kind of bakery. They go in and they're buying something. They get a tangible outcome straight away. And increasingly that tangibility is instrumental outcomes. Some of the work that Kate, Peter, and Heike has been involved in with Future Track has shown that since the 90s to the noughties, there's been a real shift in students' instrumental orientations to higher education. In the past, most students were in it because they liked the learning. They wanted to learn about subject X. Now more of them want to go to higher education because they see it as the route to a job. And why not? That's what government has been telling them for the last 10, 15 years. And the bridge, I think, between the two values for money is articulated by Willits. Because what he wanted um, is for <coughs> higher education to plug the skills gaps claimed by employers. And what he said was, the skills we were teaching in higher education didn't match the needs of employers. So what we need to do is to find out what's going on inside and find out what skills we are um, imparting to them. And what Microsoft did is we, we, broke, we broke down the process. So this is the supply, people going in. This is the process. This is what's the universities, the pedagogy. These are the outcomes, and these are the demands, the employer demands in here. And that's a kind of classic, basic labor economist model of supply through to demand. <coughs> so what's happening? Well. <coughs> This has been the old UK government policy. Strong policy on supply. Governments believed that if you wanted to improve the competitiveness of the UK economy, you had more, better qualified young people. So you massively boosted higher education. You had more students on the labour market. So somehow, magically, that would make it more competitive. You might have noticed a shift in government emphasis here because they're recognizing that it hasn't quite worked. In fact, if it had worked, Scotland would probably be now the most competitive nation in the world. It's got more graduates, most of its young people's proportion than, than England has, and most of Europe. So something's not quite working. So, hey presto, different group of people now. Apprenticeships. Three million apprentices. I don't know where that figure came from. I really don't. I'm not clear from research in our institute that employers have need for three million, but it's a new supply-side initiative. If it wasn't graduates, bang, will increase the number of apprentices. Very strong tradition among UK government. I mean, some economists would argue the reason why they do that is because that's, that's the easy bit. It's quite easy to increase the number of students. It's quite easy to increase the number of apprentices. Much more difficult to get employers to use these people. But we'll come back to that in a second. This is the new strong policy, if you like, with higher education. That what they want to do, what government wants to do, is to look inside what we're doing to see how we're converting the raw material into the finished product. And what I think is really interesting, and is an indication that higher education is still privileged in the UK, is that we've been given lots of money, people in this room have been given lots of money, to engage those 13 pilot projects to find out what's going on and to come up with measures. That hasn't happened with further education. 
they have been told that they're useless, that their quality is poor, and that they're going to be reorganized by the government. Imagine if we'd done that with the universities. We'd have gone absolutely crazy with them. But FE, you tell them they're useless. Read the industrial strategy. It says in black and white, FE is terrible in the UK. <clears throat> and that's despite the fact that they've you know, been told to do this whilst they've had massive, massive cuts that the university sector hasn't had in the last seven years. So that's the old policy. This is the new policy. Both very strong. The government's gung-ho for both still now. What's going on inside? What are some of the problems? Well, first of all, this is a kind of more, on the first supply side, it's a kind of more of the same policy. And what we've got here is an emphasis on the individual, their knowledge, skills, possibly attributes. Um, and it says what they will do is go out there and they will get good jobs as measured by the type of job they get and the, their pay. But we know that employability is not just a function, this is some of the really good work that Hank has been doing, employability is not just a function of the individual and what they own and what they possess, but also a function of labour market needs, what employers need, and also the state of the economy. In a tight labour market, employers will take anybody that they can get. Some nice, really nice quotes from the last time we had full employment. Employers say, if it breeds, we'll hire it. Nothing to do with the knowledge, skills and attributes. It's also a function of what kind of um, skills employers are wanting at any given time and whether we're actually training the right skills. Scotland in the 90s invested a lot uh, in encouraging young people to become physiotherapists, quite rightly, because they're an aging population. They thought they were kind of doing the workforce planning bit. Graduates coming through doing physiotherapy, lots of older people needing them, and then austerity kicked in, budgets were slashed, and all these physiotherapists who've got the skills that are needed couldn't find jobs. And if you go to Australia, you find lots of Scottish physiotherapists as masseurs because they couldn't get jobs in Scotland. So the supply bit is very skewed by focusing purely on the individual on what skills and knowledge that they might carry through with them. The second bit um, is that in terms of process, there's a kind of belief that universities sprinkle a little bit of magic on students. And suddenly, somehow, they're transformed into these critical thinking beings who have got lots of skills and are really gung-ho and going to go out there. Um, and there's two kind of, kind of problems with this. Um, one, I know she's doing it very tongue-in-cheek by Alison Wolfe, does education matter? And her argument was bright people, bright kids going in, bright kids going out. You can strip out the middle bit and those kids who did really well at A-levels would do really well in the labour market later on. So what does higher education add? Her argument, not a lot. And then the Aaron Roscoe piece on, on uh, academically drift showing that in, in some cases in the US, talk about the reasons for this, that actually some kids going into US college systems, university systems, actually lose some of their critical reasoning by being inside universities. And it, so it kind of makes you think about, you know, what really, it's a legitimate question to ask what goes on in here, I think. But this belief that universities suddenly sprinkle magic dust on, on, on young kids uh, is, is, I think, highly optimistic. 
at, at best, and, and actually is a really good reason why a lot of those projects should be there. Um, <clears throat> the third one is about outcomes. I mean, the two outcomes that we tend to use, um, especially going forward with, with, with the TEP, is, as I mentioned before, having a job and a level of salary. They're the two, they're the two measures which, which tend to be used. Uh, but in themselves, I think they're, they're quite problematic. Um, partly because um, there's a difference between being employed and being employable. Being employed is a one-off occurrence. Being employable is a set of resources that you have which allow you not just to obtain employment, but to sustain employment as you're going forward. But these measures don't capture that at all. In fact, they may simply be a function of some of this, the state of the labour market and the state of the economy. So we've got very weak measures at the moment in terms of outcomes. So that's problematic. I think here on the demand side, we've got very little understanding of what employers want from graduates. I think that's partly to do with employers themselves, because if there's more employers coming onto the labour market and they're going into traditionally non-graduate jobs, particularly in the UK, they tend to be hired by managers who are non-graduates themselves. And so when they're hiring graduates, they don't really know what skills they're hiring. We've done research on estate agents, which is not a graduate job in the UK, which is becoming graduatized, and you ask the owners of estate agencies why they're hiring them, and they just say they're graduates. And you ask them what skills you think they've got, and they, they don't have a clue. Not because they're stupid, it's just because it's not something they're used to, but they've been told that graduates are better human material. And, if, and frankly, if they're going to pay £25,000 to a graduate and £25,000 to a non-graduate to do the same job, they take the graduate every time. They're just being rational about that. But what graduates actually do is very difficult for them to understand. But what we do know, and this is where I'm, you know, this thing about you know, most graduates, we don't really know what they do and what they have, Actually, we've got very tight education to employment linkages in the UK, graduate labour market. There are very tight linkages in the old university system, the Russell Group University, between the professions and what they produce, and the Russell Group advertises itself that way. So in other words, law, doctors, all that kind of stuff, we've got very tight linkages between doing a law course and going into law. And Shirley Chillis's work on the new university shows that there's very tight linkages there, again with some occupations like nursing and physiotherapy. So you do a nursing degree at Coventry University, you go off and be a nurse. They're providing what the employers need at that point. But it's the bit after that we're not sure about. Those people who go into non-graduate jobs, what sort of skills the employers want from that? Well, the evidence would suggest Two main skills, attitudes and appearance. Soft skills. How do they talk? Do they behave? And will they turn up for work? In fact, some very good research from the States by a guy called Gordon Lafferty says the number one soft skill amongst American employees in the two cities he looked at was, I'll give anybody a huge bottle of champagne if you can tell me what the number one soft skill in those two American cities were. I think it's something like Philadelphia and in Detroit or something. Turning up the interview. Hmm? Turning up the interview. No, wasn't turning up the interview. Sorry? Teamwork? No. Smiling? Smiling? No. Initiative? Initiative? No. 
No. All the, these are all the things I would think. The number one skill in the two cities was the capacity to stay drug free. I didn't know that was a skill. So what is it employers want at this end? Well, they tell us they want X, Y, and Z. They tell us they've got skills gaps. They tell us there's a shortage in the labor market. But actually, the evidence suggests that. The evidence suggests that we've actually got an over-educated workforce in the UK. Between 25% and a third of the UK labor market is overqualified for the jobs. The number of jobs which require no skills has shrunk dramatically. And the number of workers with more qualifications has expanded dramatically. So when Willits is talking about the employers, this, the skills that employers want, is he perhaps talking about the, that kind of bottom third of those graduates who are not going into the two type companies and they're kind of going into some other service economy type jobs, like estate agents? And so in this sense, one of the things I've done with other colleagues is to make this distinction between graduate skills, which, we typically, which are very vague in themselves, but really rest on the kind of cognitive ability stuff, and the skills of graduates. And the skills of graduates is the, is the skills that they possess, the skills knowledge and blah, 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 when they leave. And those skills are not necessarily imbued formally through universities. They could be done through clubs. They could be... Anybody here got a European computer driving license? Damn. You're the first person I've ever met who's got one. But I'm guessing all of us in this room use computers. How did we learn how to use them? Yeah, by experience. By experience. I asked my four-year-old. Yeah. She tells me, Daddy, no. Um, so we learn from our friends, our families, our peers how to use computers. And it's the same with a lot, same with a lot of other things that we learn how to do. Those things are not embedded. And frankly, I wouldn't want most academics to teach students the, how to, you know, be nice and be drug free and da 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 da. I think we might fail in some, on some of that. So we need to make that distinction between graduate skills and the skills of graduates. And this is where I think we run up against two real issues here. One is what do policymakers want? Well, policymakers, when they're measuring outcomes, want two things a number that they can manipulate. A measure that's manipulated. So what they want to know is, x thousand pounds, can it be raised to x plus one or x plus two? That's how they will measure themselves and that's how they're assessed. So politicians want a number. And we grapple with this, we're doing something on job quality at the moment, and we're telling them you can't give job quality a number, they say you have to give job quality a number. Britain needs to be better than Italy in the league tables. It needs to be better than France. They need a, they need a measure. It's simple. It's their headline. And the second is a policy hurdle. Since the 1990s, and we were talking about this yesterday at an OECD report launch and with the DFE over the summer again, we have been talking to the DFE for over 20 years about, the need, about their need to understand what demand is but also to raise demand amongst employers. And that it's no good as churning out all these graduates if they're not going to be used. And the evidence is pretty clear. Those graduates who are overqualified 
don't tend to grow their jobs in the workplace and be more productive. They become dissatisfied, demotivated, and eventually they leave. So, the value of higher education to government learners, we're talking about measured by knowledge, skills, and attributes, for instrument purpose, getting a higher paid job, being in work and having a good job, as measured by pay. Not, not necessarily by satisfaction. Government doesn't care whether people are happy in their jobs, just that they're in a job and they're getting paid. And preferably above the average. There was a high-rising Tory MP yesterday at this meeting who suggested, and I'm not going to name him, that we should be thinking about culling any courses in universities which do not pay the average salary for graduates. And instead, he wants us to focus on STEM subjects alone, because they pay more. Um, and this is when I say, excuse me, I'm about to bang my head on the table. Anyway, so, about high paying job. The differences, I think, between the spouse challenges or the problems triggering the policy, and the real problems within the policy, around the conceptualization of things. But even within its own terms, about addressing employability, its notion of employability is too narrow. It's about being in a job. It's not about having that resource <coughs> to both maintain, uh, to both obtain and sustain a job. A benign account says, problems with all this is <coughs> practical, is a practical one, data availability. And what gets measured gets counted. Pay is incredibly easy. Economists love pay. You go into any meeting with the government, about education and you see the room packed full of economists and they talk about pay. That's their only measure. We're doing, we're doing that uh, last week with, um, with uh, further education. <coughs> and pay data is pretty reliable. It's pretty robust. It goes back over a long time. You can compare, compare our pay to Italian pay, to French pay, to American pay. So it's, so it's comparable, it's longitudinal, it's relatively robust. And it tells us two things. Whether they're in jobs, they are, and they're paying so maybe it's a practical problem. Maybe that's what part of these pilots are trying to do, come up with other data sets. But whether they will be acceptable um, to, to ministers is another issue. But it's on, on its own terms, we think it's got reconceptualization in terms of what constitutes supply and employment demand, what skills are being supplied by students, and whether they're actually developing higher education, and if they are, what bits of higher education. Is it in the classroom, or is it through going to debating societies, for example. We've got some work from FutureTrack that we're looking at now in terms of social mobility. And it seems to be that working class kids do very well in Russell Group universities, as well as their middle class counterparts, if they join the debating society. Or something similar. Now that's about social and cultural capital, not about human capital. And the, then the link between supply and demand and higher education's function within that. Is the function of higher education to develop skills or to meet the demand for skills? In which case, if employers have got low demands, do we go low with our skills? Or is it about having a high-skilled workforce and getting employers to raise their skill demands? Where does higher education fit in there? And then finally, and this is the big thing, um, which is a huge leap of faith on our part, we think learning again can't just be about being employed and having a higher paid job. It may be about going back to first principles and saying, what is it that higher education is about? We know there are other returns to higher education, like well-being, both 
physical and psychosocial. We know that political and civic engagement is enhanced by higher education. There's a big debate in Brexit about um, uh, about who voted for Brexit, and we had lots of debates about rural and urban, metropolitan elites, about young and old. The biggest single group of people by proportion who voted for Brexit were the low and unskilled. People like us, we voted. And we probably voted to stay in. So political and civic engagement is enhanced. So what is what is higher education really for? Maybe what we ought to be doing is thinking about the principles of higher education and then trying to work backwards and provide trying to generate measures around that. See what added value higher education creates. And that's it. Anything? <laughs>